0: What's up, folk? It's RJ Young. I am not on a step mill. Thank you for subscribing to the number one ranked show where we're going to talk with Jim Ross, a.k.a. J.R., who gets into a conversation about Baker Mayfield, Spence Rattler, and Lincoln Riley, and Bill Bedenboe, and his favorite moments as this Oklahoma fan, but also he's excited to be getting back to a football game for the first time at OU in more than 30 years. Really cool interview, and I'm very Grateful that Jr. took the time to go and talk with us, but we're headed into June. Like this is coming out on like Memorial Day, which is a very big deal to a lot of people for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is we're coming up on the centennial anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which is very dear and dear to me, and I'm from the city of Tulsa. But also, 31st of May means that we're getting into June 1, which means that the long-awaited end to the recruiting dead period is right now. 16 months we have gone without kids being able to make visits to schools. This also includes the all-important elite camps where we're going to find out just who is elite. But it means that we're going to see the most loaded schedule for the month of June we've ever seen, perhaps the most loaded schedule outside of the season that we've ever seen for recruits. And to illustrate that, Compiled a list of players that have set up visits just in the month of june alone and we're going to stick with the five stars so that you can really see what i'm talking about here starting with the number two overall recruit in the country defensive tackle walter nolan has visits set up on june 4th this weekend with florida and then june 18th at michigan right that's the number two player number one defensive tackle in the country for the class 2022 number five we got zach rice offensive tackle he's got visits set up in four different dates every weekend in june june 4th ohio state june 11th virginia june 18th alabama june 24th notre dame being a player in here number six overall cornerback denver johnson right he's got visits set up this weekend june 4th at AM. june 11th at lsu june 18th At Texas, June 25th at Bama. I want you to keep an eye on the Bama here because there's a lot of Bama going on here because that's what Bama does. But Shamar Stewart, he's keeping it real simple. He's going to go to LSU on June 4th, call it good. You'll notice that the crystal balls are trending that way for LSU and Shamar Stewart, who is number seven overall recruit in the country. Number eight overall, Devin Campbell, June 4th at USC, Clay Helton, stand up. And then June 25th at Oklahoma, Bill Beatonboe getting his hands on what is the best offensive guard in the 2022 class. Number 12 and the number one overall outside linebacker, pass rusher type, Harold Perkins with the old man name. June 4th, he's going to AM. June 11th, he's going to USC. Number 14 overall, Jeremiah Alexander. He's got a visit set up to USC on June 4th, but also shout out Gus Malzahn, who's got him visiting on June 11th at Central Florida. That is what Gus Malzahn has been able to do in a short amount of time. Convince five stars to take the trip to a group of five squad to see what it'll be like, right? We might see the first dude commit to a group of five school since your man's down in Houston, right? And I, I wonder about this because I wonder why more five stars aren't considering group of five programs when you can look around and you can see, hey, I could be the man out here. I, I can be a legend out here if I do it correctly. So, shout out to Jeremiah Alexander who was getting this in. Number 16 overall recruit. Gabriel Brownlow Dindy setting up visits on June 18th to AM. June 25th to The Ohio State. Number 19 overall. Number 1 athlete in the country. Keon Sab, setting up a visit to Notre Dame on June 11th to UGA, that's Georgia. June 18th and June 25th at AM. That's just the month of June, right? And that's me stopping at the top 20. But here's another thing that's wild and interesting about the 2022 class going into this all important evaluation season, right? Where you get to see the kids up close, you get to see who's good, you get to see who's working, you get to see the kids in a way that we just didn't get to see them in the play gear. We're going to see five stars move up and move down. We're going to see a total reevaluation by the three major networks. But It bears saying we're going into a time when we had 38 kids as five stars, ranked as five stars according to the 247 Sports Composite, which is bonkers, right? And the reason that is bonkers is because when you really look at this, take in the 2021 cycle, you'll see 34 five stars. Take in the 2020 cycle, you'll see 32 five stars. And that is the number that you're really trying to get at. You're trying to whittle this down to 32, if not 30, because the idea here is projecting forward, these are the guys we expect to be drafted in the first round according to, you know, how they perform and in the NFL draft in three years' time, right? When we're doing these rankings, we're never thinking about kids staying for longer than they have to, which is to say you get your three years' eligibility in to be eligible for the NFL, and then you go. This is why you see a guy like Spencer Rattler who as a redshirt sophomore is in an NFL draft eligible year, and you'll hear from Jim Ross, probably is gone after this year, especially if it goes the way that many of us expect it to go, which is Oklahoma playing for a national championship, right? You also got to put a premium on quarterbacks here because quarterbacks are going to be overdrafted because quarterbacks are so important to what we're doing. But also in this year, the number one player in the class, Quinn Ewers, is still rated at 1.000. There have only been six players in rankings history, right, since the age of the networks in 99 that we have seen get a mark of a perfect score of 1.000. They include guys like Davion Clowney, Rashawn Gary, right, like Vince Young. We're talking about all-timers. This is what the dude at South Lake Carroll is about, and right now he's committed to Ohio State after having been committed to Texas for, you know, about three months and then figuring out – you know, maybe I want to go to Ohio State, which is really interesting because up until recently, we're not talking about Ohio State quarterbacks getting drafted in the first round. And Ryan Day has changed that with both the guys that he has tapped as starters have been drafted inside of the first 12 picks, right? I'm forgetting where Dwayne Haskins was drafted, but I think I got that right. 12, 14, 15 in there. And they've had two in the past three years drafted in the first round after going years like Art Schleder. I think I got that right. Buckeyes fans, let me know if I was able to say Schleter correctly this time. So that's three dudes like since the 1980s that they've had drafted a quarterback. And all of a sudden you're getting the number one player in the country who is also a quarterback committed to play for you on what is already a loaded quarterback depth chart with CJ Stroud, with Jack Miller, and with Kyle McCord. They're just bonkers and nasty. But the other reason I think this is a wild time for recruiting and evaluations is 18 of those 38 players are committed, which means we're talking about 20 kids that are still figuring this out among the five stars, but we've also seen the fewest amount of commitments that was seen at this time in recent memory. Last year, it felt like everybody was accepting a commitment or taking on a commitment because they had to, right? It it felt like, hey, we're never going to get to see these kids. We're going to have to gamble. And the evaluations for the 21 class are going to be all over the board. We're not gonna know if we're right or wrong. We're gonna misevaluate so many people because we didn't get this time. But also, the kids are probably misevaluating where they're going as well because you didn't get to visit the place you ultimately committed to and signed a national letter intent with. Like that for me is wild interesting. Take into account for here, Shadrach Banks coming out of North Shore. Shadrach Banks committed to a and AM before the spring is over, like spring semester, he is asking for his letter of intent to be released so that he can go up to Texas. Christian, what? Which means that also off of like state championship teams, Gary Patterson has recruited Zach Evans and Chad Banks. after the February signing period has ended and Demetrius Davis is over there at Auburn. But, um, you know, depending on how you feel about what Max Duggan looks like in a couple of years or what you think that Chandler Morris might look like a couple of years, you might actually see another dude end up there, especially with TJ Finley announcing that he is committing to transfer to Auburn to compete with Bo Nix and Demetrius Davis for the starting job in 2021. I got a feeling the odd man out there might be looking for a place to go and, you know, why not just get the band back together from North Shore, go up to Texas Christian, but that's another thing altogether. It is to say, you're going to hear so many kids giving so many opinions and you're going to see so many commitments going down because Guys are going to get the offer that they want after they go and beat somebody behind at one of these elite camps. And that's how it's going to go down. Matter of fact, an example of this is a couple of years ago, Brock Vandegrift gets an offer, an offer from Oklahoma in January of 2019, shows up to elite camp, shows out, commits a couple of days afterward. We know how that goes. He ends up reopening his recruitment after Oklahoma gets railroaded in the college football playoff semifinal, commits to Georgia. Now he is backing up JT Daniels. But in that same camp, Relique Brown showed up. Relique Brown flew in from California so that he could earn an offer from Oklahoma and then later commits to Oklahoma. We'll see if the commitment sticks. I think that it will. But that is an example of what you are missing from last year. Kids that have an opportunity to get on a plane, to go to the place that they think they want to go to school to earn an offer, right? Another example of this that I think is important that I point to is CJ Stroud. C.J. Stroud began the March 2020 year, ranked 838th in the country. By June, after competing in elite camp at Oakland, he was ranked inside the top 500, or just outside the top 500. By the end of the evaluation period and going into early signing period, he was a five-star recruit. He didn't end as a five-star recruit, but that's how much his ranking moved up because he was able to go to camps, he's going to show out, and he was able to do this in front of people that make these evaluations. And the coaches had opportunities to offer him. And part of the evaluation process is who has offered you and at what position? If Alabama offers you, you are automatically a three-star recruit. Period. Ask Josh Jacobs how that goes. Because Josh Jacobs is another dude in which nobody was recruiting at all, even though he was stopping a mud hole and people and walking them dry in North Tulsa up there in McLean. And then all of a sudden, Oklahoma comes in there just a little bit. Missouri comes in there just a little bit. Alabama comes in there. And then when Alabama offered, you saw he went from no stars, three stars, real quick. And then Nick Saban made that man sit there at his own signing ceremony and say, hold on, you can't commit yet because we don't know if we can take him. Ends up working out well for him because, well, A, they won a national championship or competed in a national championship, I should say. And B, It shows what I've been saying about my hometown, which is that we put out hitters. Like the starting safety for Michigan is Dax Hill. He went to Booker T. Starting safety for Ohio State is Josh Proctor. He went to Owasso, which is a suburb of Tulsa. We can keep going on here about how Tulsa be putting out these hitters and don't nobody want to recruit them until Nick Saban says somebody's good. And then Nick, Nick Saban takes Josh Jacobs, put him into the game against Oklahoma, and he lives a greasy skid mark on the floor that is Robert Barnes. All to say, the evaluations matter. And where you go to camp matters. And we're seeing more kids go to camp than we have seen go to camp in a very long time. And we're all here for it. All right, let's talk to JR about his team, the Oklahoma Sooners, my team, the Oklahoma Sooners, and why he is so proud to be an Oki. And I'm so proud to call him an Oki. And I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I learned a lot about how to do this job directly from hearing him call raw. Let's talk to JR. How you doing this morning, JR? I'm
1: good. Good. Thanks for having me on, uh, RJ. Good to talk to you again.
0: Yes, sir. Uh, well, I want to talk some ball with you to begin with, right? Uh, because okay. we share this in common. Uh, I'm a tremendous OU fan. You are the OU fan.
1: <laughs>
0: and I wanted to ask just from the start, like last year, nobody got to go to games. Not really. Yeah. How long had it been since you didn't get to go to an Oklahoma game?
1: Probably 30 years long time since before you were born i assume Somewhere not, not quite the, not quite close okay <laughs> uh close my first uh, ou texas game was uh in 1971 or two uh so and, and every year i try to make it back and then uh, through my various uh stops along the way car- career-wise i always uh made it to Norman to, to the level that my wife and I, my late wife, and I bought a home there just to go to football games and have holidays, with my family and so forth. Uh, and so I still have that home in Norman I also a partner in a 16 person suite. And I got six tickets on the 50 on the other side of the field. So I'm I'm ticket poor and I'm, uh, enjoying every damn minute of it. <laughs> and I didn't go to, but I didn't go to a game last year, which is sad and, uh, I can understand how fans live out of state and around the area. They can't get there. I missed it a lot. So uh, I know we had three home games in September, and I plan on making them all based on my uh, AEW schedule.
0: Well, there's one in particular on that non-conference schedule that I want to talk about, and I'm sure you want to talk about. It's OU Nebraska. Yeah. I'm old enough to have appreciated that rivalry, but it's one that hadn't been played in the better part of 10 years. Do you have fond memories of it?
1: Oh yeah. You know, because the reason I have fond memories of that, uh, uh that event is because back in the day, as many of us old timers like to say back in the day, my day, uh, it was Thanksgiving weekend. Mm. And so it reminds me of my mother's kitchen, smelling really good. And the, and the Turkey and the dressing corn, and we had cornbread dressing that was to me, that's the only kind. And so it was a family thing, but everything was, uh, over before the game came on, because when the game came on, it was, it was game time. And that's what our focus was on. Uh, the, in that, in those days, again, uh, the Sooners weren't on TV every week, kind of like they are now, uh, they got probably two TV games a year, Texas and Nebraska. And so when we had a chance to see the, the team on, on television, it was a big deal. So, uh, that was, it's been always been great memories, but it's tied to my family. It's tied to the aromas that came out of my mom's kitchen. There's a lot of emotional, uh, contact in that regard. So I, I'll be excited about that. You know, to see, uh, the corn come to Norman and, and, and resume. But I hope, you know, I don't know why the hell they left the big, big 12. I know why they left the big 12 cause of Texas and the Longhorn network, all that stuff, it's all po- politics and money. Real simple, really, really simple. Uh, so I'm hoping that somewhere along the way that smarter heads will prevail and some of this realignment b- business will be addressed by, uh, by those involved.
0: Well, hell, I mean, uh, you, you mentioned it. Like, we know why they left, but it ain't gone too well for them. You know what I mean? Like, that, that's the part of this that I find to be the most interesting. And Nebraska thought they were getting the better end of the deal on this thing. And it hadn't turned out to be that way, even in what we think of as a weaker division in the Big Ten West compared to the Big Ten East. But this game, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be two top 25 teams, if not two top 10 teams playing against each other. And it doesn't look like Nebraska's gonna be in a position to hold up their end. But if Oklahoma doesn't win this game by about three, four touchdowns, you <laughs> gonna like are are you gonna get the willies? Because I think of this team as being able to win a national championship.
1: It seemed like they have all the elements in place. You know, I was just in Oklahoma uh, last weekend. I think it was last weekend, weekend before, whatever. uh, uh Recently, to attend my uh, oldest granddaughter's high school graduation at uh, Lincoln Christian Academy.
0: Hey, bulldog stand yeah. up!
1: That's in <laughs> so, my neck uh, of the woods. You i, I where I was, and uh, on, a, on a Sunday night, seeing her graduate was a cool thing. And but it's just funny because people know I'm a big OU fan, and uh, as far as a lot of my buddies are concerned and the more they drink, the more convinced they are that Oklahoma's got this thing won. and they got this thing one and, and, uh, I don't typically buy into that. They're always a target. Uh, you know, they're the heel of a like a pro wrestling villain when they go on the road, they're beloved when they're at home to some fanatical degree, which I love that too. So, uh, but for years and years, uh, for years and years, RJ, I didn't miss many away games. Mm. Sometimes I rode in a team plane. Sometimes I had buddies that had planes. uh, Sometimes we took road trips. But, man, I was all in for a long time. And I can't be that all in now. But I'm uh, certainly going to support them every every turn in the road.
0: You are a true OU fan because you don't like the hype. Like, that's the other part about this that I find to be the most interesting is there are a bunch of folks that the ones that think they got it won aren't the folks that have been around for when OU starts out ranked number three in the country, number five in the country, number one in the country, whatever it might be, because it always feels like we're going to come around and see Texas Christian on a day where they got it together. Or yeah. when Katy Perry decides to call up Trevor Knight and tell him to call her. Color, right. Uh, it feels that way. <laughs> yeah. So if you, when you look at the schedule, what do you think? Uh, who are you most afraid of?
1: Well, Texas. Okay. They're right. due. You know, uh, somebody else is actually due to win the big 12. Yeah. I think we've won six in a row, six championships in a row. Uh, but there's good coaches in the big 12 How Arkeesia is going to do at Texas remains to be seen. They have high hopes. He's going to do well. If they just get uh, their share of the top players in Texas, they should be able to compete with anybody anywhere at any time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, that rivalry always scares me because of Really a deep passion rivalry games cannot really be predicted. You know, it's a game that I would never bet on. Uh, I know everybody tries to figure out the little formula. Well, is it three and a half? Is half going to kill me and all that stuff? Uh, and a game like OU Texas, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't gamble on it whatsoever. Uh, I think Oklahoma State's going to be decent. Mm-hmm. And I think we play Oklahoma State. Uh, what do we play Oklahoma State in Stillwater? I think, I think we that's do. right this year. Yeah, so that's never, uh, you know, an easy ride of 35. Uh, but you got you got Gary Patterson, like you mentioned, is a great coach at TCU. They, they get to recruit those good Texas kids. You know, hell, they can recruit a great great team on a tank of gas in the Metroplex. So uh, I don't know, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of who else.
0: Well, Kansas State has had their number,
1: you know, the yeah. last two years. Well, that's true. And they got a good coach. Yeah. The coaching upgrade in the Big 12 has uh, been significant. So. I think, uh, I, 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 I sat on the edge of my seat about the only game that I would say, uh, big 12 game Mm -hmm. that I would say we could, we should be able to handle pretty easily is Kansas after that, we're the, we're the target. Mm -hmm. And so you have a bad day, you have turnovers, you have penalties that are unnecessary, non-contact penalties, silly things. Uh, you just have a bad day and, and God forbid something happens to Spencer Rattler. You know, that's a, that's a, that's what scares me because so much of our team is built around him. You know, he's already projected to be one of the top, you know, two or three draft picks in a draft and all those things. It's inevitable. This is his last year at Oklahoma. Hmm. Now the good news is, is that we went out and got another quarterback mm-hmm. and he's a bad, bad, bad man. So, uh, I think, uh, you just never know. That's what makes the game so much fun. And I like for Oklahoma to be the bad guys on the road. It's fun as hell. If you watch it on television, you're, you're cheering your team and you're here to get booed at every step of the way. And, uh, and I think it, for our guys and how they're coached, it enhances their swag. They believe they're the baddest dudes in the land and they believe they can always make plays. They believe they can always score. And with Lincoln Valley calling the plays, you know, RJ, I'm not going to debate that point.
0: Well, and you bring up a good point in that they're ultra talented, right? And you wonder... Uh, if penalties and whatnot will get in the way of whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. And we know that this year, that is ultimately winning a national championship, but along the way, you got to make plays, you got to stay healthy. And that's, that's the part about this that I won't gamble on is everybody loses players. Everybody has attrition for one reason or another, whether it's preseason preseason ACL tear, or you lose your quarterback for a couple of series here and there, and there goes your game. But to your point about Rattler, goodness me, uh, I I came up with Bob, right? And I want to talk about him a little bit, but I never really, right. I I never really had a quarterback until Baker came through. And this is this kid. Maybe it's because it's recent bias here, but he has that kind of moxie about him. He has that kind of heel nature about him. He likes playing in front of people that are booing him. He likes being told that they're not going to be any good or that his players aren't as good as your players who are, who are some of the guys that you would compare him to?
1: Oh, my. Uh, well, you know, I've been around a lot longer than you. So yes, I've, seen a, I've seen a few quarterbacks. You know, Jack Milton was one of my dearest friends. Uh, and I thought he was absolutely probably the toughest quarterback I've ever seen at OU uh, physically. Because he was the object of that. He's playing the wishbone. He's going to be hit almost every play. Uh, and he endured. And he succeeded. Uh, you know baker had a swag about it uh sometimes a little bit too much i think but it always seemed to motivate his team quarterbacks have to understand what it takes to motivate their team and sometimes it's making an ass for yourself mm. or it's being a little bit uh, cocky then that's what you got to do whether it, not, it might not be palatable for all you know it's not your daddy's football game anymore this is a whole it's all about mental and they're posturing and they're looking for the, the next deal. They're looking for the NFL. They're looking for endorsements. They're at OU to get a degree but there. A lot of those kids are at OU to realistically get a job in the national football league, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, you wish you had a kid that had that kind of ability that could have that kind of a starting job His entry-level job. If you're a top draft pick, it's pretty damn good. So, uh, uh, but Mildred was tough. Baker was charisma, personified. I never got that close to Kyler because, you know, Kyler was very, uh, withdrawn at times individual. So he didn't get out there much. You know, when Baker was a red shirt was red shirting and I was on the sideline for the OU games. So I've been on the sideline for hundreds of them. I'm blessed to say I used to hang with Baker on the sideline. And I could tell at that point, he had such a great, uh, feel for the game. He would tell me Jr. This place is going to work Or, "JR, This is it. This is money. Watch this, you know, watch number. So-and-so because he was here in the place being called and man, it was a fun way to watch a football game. So then I would focus on that receiver and all of a sudden, boom, and, uh, they, they would do well. I never, I never got behind, uh, as much as I should have. I loved this is uh, stats Landry Jones was just didn't have the charisma to draw us in. Mm-hmm. He, he was very yeoman-like when about did his work, but my God, he had a great arm. He had a great arm. He could throw the ball. Uh, so all those cats are, were, uh, th- that I've seen over the years. there have been some great quarterbacks. I thought Jason white was a quarterback till his knees. all got wrecked and, you know, he could throw the ball as a million miles an hour and a million miles away. And he was a good athlete. You know, Jason was a good defensive player in high school. Uh, so. I, I, but I, but Baker to me was my favorite quarterback that we've had there. And that's because I got to know him mm. and we got to hang together and I saw what kind of kid he was. And he was a wrestling fan. He'd kid me about Stone Cold and all these things or saddle up next to me and start whispering, Stone Cold, Stone Cold. But he's just a kid, he's one of the guys. And I think the team uh, played through him in that, in that, in that image. So, but this kid, the rattler, you know, here's the other thing about this. It's so looking at it socially, you know, uh, when you have a blonde haired African-American quarterback, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that's an interesting dichotomy to to sort through, but it doesn't bother me a damn bit. I could care less as long as we're winning. I don't care what skin color. I'm not a skin color guy period. Anyway, I'm a Cherokee. So I'm a, I'm a half-assed minority myself, uh, quite frankly. I wasn't subject to all the prejudices that my great grandfather was. He was a, he was a redheaded, uh, whitered snow guy, but he married a full blood Cherokee and back in Adair County, Oklahoma. in and that, you know, in the early 1900s, that didn't go down well. And I've heard all those stories, man. So I didn't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't even embrace my brain to even talk about, uh, how stupid it was. But there's a, there are, there are fans on the road that will take shots at, uh, Spencer because of his DNA. And I say, bring it on because all it's going to do is motivate him. And, you know, he's a he's a stud man. And, and, and I just hope he stays healthy. I'm knocking on wood right now, but, uh, he could be our next number one draft pick. There's no doubt he has a good year. He's got to stay healthy, RJ, as you know, and that's what scares the hell out of me is that. He's such a focal point of our team that you know every defensive coordinator and every head coach in the land are going to single him out as the guy we have to control, and we got to stop him, and we got to punish him. It's the same old theory that people used to say about Tom Brady: you got to get him off his spot. Mm-hmm. He's not real athletic; he can't run away from him. you, can't make people miss very often. So you got to you got to get him off his spot, and what's the means beat the hell out of him get around his feet and ankles, you know, get him uncomfortable. All those things that we hear the, the TV broadcaster say, but that's what you got to do with OU. You got to make Spencer Rattler uncomfortable and force him into, uh, these errors that he here to not normally make. So, so I think it's going to be a great year. The receiving course strong, you know, Lincoln's done a great job with his staff and recruiting these guys. My favorite coach there though, used bill Bibo and not just because he's my neighbor in Norman when I'm there. Uh, but he and I get along great. We get together and watch MMA fights, UFC and things like that on a, on a pretty regular basis when they have a fight and I'm in town, I go to his house and, uh, his wife, Meredith is a good cook. And so I eat, drink and watch fights. And Then I drive my little vehicle right back down the street to my house. So Bow is a, a unsung jewel there. I tell you, RJ, you can't have all these great quarterbacks wanting to come to Norman. Without them recognizing that we have the best offensive line coach in college football, and he recruits some major monsters, major size, attitudinal monsters. And as long as he keeps doing that, I, I just I'm lucky that we have him. I know we're going to lose the defensive coordinator sooner than later. <laughs> that's that's inevitable, right? I mean, he's he's going to be gone. Somebody's going. To, he's going to be a head coach someplace. But uh, beating Boas, man, he's the he's an unsung jewel there. And I think people should you know pay a little bit more. Attention. Look at the guys who's put in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Tons of them. Well,
0: so. look, I look at Ed Biedenboe, and I, <laughs> I see it, but I don't know that there's really opportunities out there for folks to get to know him in the way that perhaps you might get to know Lincoln because you see him every time there's a presser, right? And you mentioned right. Coach Grinch. Alex Grinch is going to be a head coach because he's got that sort of mentality as well. Yep. But what Bill did to overhaul the offensive line almost – as soon as Lincoln, uh, just a little bit before Lincoln got there, as I remember, to make it more physical, to beef them up, to employ a, a scheme that took advantage of their physicality, but also married the passing concept with the run attack. I don't know that we'd seen anything like that. I mean, we're talking about an OU team that routinely goes for 300 on the ground, 300 through the air. And that's, that's your offensive line doing all that work up front. So I think r- real, I said real in air quotes here, Oklahoma fans understand that's perhaps the most important assistant on Lincoln Riley's staff. And I think so.
1: You can't continue to recruit those number one players or players of a high standing, uh, and without a meaning skill position, guys, Mm -hmm. receivers want, uh, to play on a team that where the quarterback has an opportunity to get them the ball, right. They came to catch the football and then run with it. Uh, you've got running backs. Same basic premise. I need holes to run. Sometimes I only need to crack, but I, I need, I need room. And if you give me room, I'll make place for you. Offensive. All that starts with the offensive line. And of course the most important element is giving your quarterback time to throw the ball, make a good decision and keep him healthy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, being both a, a, real player, in my, in my eyes, And again, I'm biased. I'll be fully transparent here. Uh, he's a friend. You know, uh, he's just, he does such a hell of a job. You, what you mentioned was very astute in the fact that he's created an attitude with that room and, and, you know, I've had cookouts with them and things that were all legal. I didn't give them any money underneath their steak, uh, or nothing, but they're, they're, they're monstrous people. Mm-hmm. But the thing you still remember is they're still kids Yeah. and they have to be motivated, they have to be. They have to be loved, they have to trust, they have to understand why all this hard work is ongoing, because it's a difference maker in how well we do. If we have a national championship run, it a lot of that was going to be is in my view, is going to be uh uh credited back to the O line. Mm-hmm. And then of course uh Grinch has done a great job on the defense. The defense at one time, I couldn't believe how bad we were. I mean, we were having trouble tackling. Look, hey,
0: hey, look! I was losing my mind in 2017, 2018. I was, I was flipping tables because I'm watching <laughs> three man fronts against Georgia as Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle have their way with the defensive line, defensive yep. front, and then I, I love Grinch for this. He comes in and they, you know, he knows what it is in 2018. He says, you know, 129 out of 130 pass defense, and he was being, he was joking, but he was kind of serious and that I want that tattooed on their foreheads. <laughs> you were 129th out of 113. You were damn near dead last in defending the pass. We can't play football like that. And he comes in with this attitude of football is hard, right? Like it ain't supposed to be easy. And if you're doing it correctly, it's going to be hard. And the idea that you would have that sort of guy coming in to break down an Oklahoma defense, I think 20 years ago, is unfathomable because of how good they were. I mean, particularly 02, 03, 04, that 4 3 under they were running. But he installs what I think of as a hybrid 3-4, three, 3-3-5 three, three, and gets these skinny fast dudes on the defensive line and tells his linebackers to go eat people's lunch, and it works. You know, like I I marvel at being able to motivate a kid that is that talented because most of the time they know they're this good, right? And you have to find new ways to challenge them, but not to take away their will, right? Not to break them down so much that they don't want to work.
1: Well, you, you got to let – when you recruit a bunch of wild horses – uh, you got to let them run. Mm. And, and even though you got to put a bit in their mouth to, to control things as they don't get out of control, uh, you still got to let them run. You still got to have, they got to have their independence and they, and they can't have their confidence affected. And I think that's what, uh, coach Grinch has done is he's given this team, uh, defensively a confidence that we can be good. We can be really good and we can win games for our team by, based on how we play. And you know the I like the fact you know we got a defensive line coach from Oklahoma and Calvin Thibodeau Calvin from Oklahoma right
0: Yeah well he played at Oklahoma he played at I
1: Oklahoma. mean I'm trying to think of high school he might have been what high school in Houston okay. anyway and then you got a, a kid from Ada that's a linebacker coach
0: mm-hmm. I love I that him. Yeah
1: yeah oh he, yeah he's a, he's a good one boy. He was on that when those be,
0: teams were killing people. Like those Ada teams were killing people.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. They they were at one time they were dominant one of the dominant teams in the state. But I like to, and his def, his backside of his defense is strong recruiting wise, passion-wise. So what's happened here is much like Bob's early staff, you know, uh when Bob hired Leach and and uh and Man Gino and all these guys that went on to become head coaches, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think Lincoln's in the same scenario. We're going to have a lot of our coaches at some point in time, or I'll say a lot, I don't know what that means, but several coaches are going to get offers to go do other things to make more money for their family and run their own program and Same those programs in North Carolina. are Carolina. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he's, and he was perfect mm-hmm. and he knew he was going to be a head coach, mm-hmm. just hanging around him, coaching those H backs or special teams, which his family's known for coaches, teams. uh, coach Beamer is his dad was a, you know, he was a genius at that. So you're going to see more of that, I think. And I think that's a testament to Lincoln, but the same thing is a testament to Bob, we got off. Bob built a foundation of coaching excellence there led by him that, uh, you know, is unprecedented in my view to win so many games. And if you only base it on winning national titles, then, uh, you're missing the point as a fan, uh, we all want to win national titles. But uh, the only one that seems to have a, a lease on that title is Nick Saban. Well, and it, it, that, you know, that
0: right there is the reason why it's real difficult to tell people that you can't have your national title. Me being one of those folks. Now, I was 13 the last time that Oklahoma won a national title. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting up there, right? It's, it's been some years since I turned 18. It's been some years since I bought my house. I want to see a national title living in the state of Oklahoma. Like I, I I really want that for for myself and but for kids that just don't know because the other part about being an Oklahoma fan coming up the way I have is we don't re, we don't know losing. You know, we we don't no. we, we don't know winning national titles, but we don't know losing. Right? We yeah. play we play for Big 12 championships. Yeah. We play in New Year's six bowl games. That's our that's birthright or so we come to believe, right? That's,
1: that's all that matters what you believe. Mm. If you believe and you believe strongly enough that anything you do, it has a chance to come true.
2: Mm.
1: You, you, you can't, you, your, your dreams are your dreams. And as long as they're realistic and for us in Oklahoma, we're entitled,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, we're spoiled mm-hmm. and that started long before I was born, believe it or not. And certainly long before you were born RJ,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: with Wilkinson and all those cats, uh, you know, you don't win, what do you win? 56 games in a row at one point in time. And, 47 uh, straight. 47, yeah. 47,
0: 47
1: straight. Who am I thinking 56? That might have been Joe DiMaggio's uh, hit streak.
0: Yeah, no, it was. <laughs> but, hey, and here's the other part about that. Like, people haven't gotten close. You know, like, North right. had theirs end, I want to say, at 39 here earlier this year. Uh, The Toledo team in, like, 69 won, like, 35 in a row. Miami, USC here of late, they did it. I mean, and that—that that is what Bob is inheriting from Barry and, of course, from Bud and Bud from Benny. But I did want to ask you, have you given Fox Sports' newest personality any uh, any tips?
1: Uh, say that one more time, please. Fox
0: Sports' newest personality.
1: Uh, is that you? No, no sir. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. okay. We know, we know, okay. All right. Know, you might be there someday, RJ. Just keep working, man. Uh, Bobby's going to do a great job. You know, uh, uh, Jacob Oldman, the senior VP of Fox Sports, uh, is a dear friend of mine has been for a long long time uh and you know he used me on some Fox boxing at one point in time and you know he's always got me uh, some uh, FaceTime whether it be at a game like the Cotton Bowl the o, the OU Texas game uh things like that being on a pregame show things of that nature we're just buddies and we we love each other and when my wife got killed in 2017 he was Johnny on the spot he was probably one of the first few handful of people that even reached out and he was so upset. He had a hard time talking as I, as did, I had a hard time listening. Uh, but we were talking about Bob and I said, man, he's, I think he's going to be great. Uh, he's a different personality than urban Meyer. You know, urban was all business and very stoic and structured and, you know, regimented and Bob's not going to be, Bob's going to be have, have his game together, but he's not going to be overly structured. So in other words, when the. Here's how I envisioned it. Here's how I would say the difference when they, when those guys are off camera and they were done for the day, Bob will go have a beer with you. I don't see urban going to having a beer with the boys. Mm. And we're seeing that here in Jacksonville now where I'm recording this from, you know, uh, he's, he's built a great deal of the excitement and anticipation for the city. Of course, drafting Trevor Lawrence didn't hurt anything. Travis ETN at the end of that, their first round draft was a surprise and a pleasant one for me. Cause I thought Travis Etienne was one of the best players in America last year for Clemson. Uh, he makes things happen, but Bob's going to be, Bob's going to add a little bit more humor. Uh, he's going to add some, uh, I don't want to say maybe it's casualness, but that indicates laziness or something. And he's not obviously, you know that, mm-hmm. uh, but he knows the game. He never has never left the football game. His father was a coach. When has Bob Stoots ever been detached from football? He said, well, he, you know, he, he retired from coaching. Then he went to the, the XFL run, uh, reminiscent of your Jersey there, uh, with, he hate me. Uh, I remember him well, Yay. and, uh, but Bob's going to do a good job. He's going to be, he's going to have fun. It's going to be a different feel, uh, on, on, uh, on camera. Jacob was telling me that, uh, that there's so many X number of coaches that are can't remember how many coaches have won the national championship, and how they have hired many of them, like Urban, mm-hmm. for example, and now they have Bob. Bob's the only coach that's won a national championship in recent memory that's not on television. So Bob's a guy. He said, so I said you made a great hire, and uh, and I know this it's, it's uh, conflicting for Bob at times because his son is uh, playing on the team, got a scholarship awarded him the not too long ago. I think he's, uh, one of those, uh, Julian Edelman type players where he can find a spot and, and he can catch the ball. He has no fear. just like his dad, mm. you know, crazy old Mike Stoops. He didn't, he had no fear, but Bobby was a but Bob. You can talk to guys from Iowa and I've done that a lot. Cause when I travel, I'll go to places speak or whatever. They, a lot of guys in that region talk about Bob and they said, man, he was the nastiest player on the team. He hurt you.
0: He, he. he... He broke Mark Harris's jaw. Like, (laughs) I love that story because, you know, I think of Bob as – no disrespect Bob. Bob ain't the biggest dude in the world. He knows that. But he's playing some strong safety. And the flanker, Mark Harris-Purdue, wearing his jersey number, comes screaming across the middle. And Bob put a helmet into the cheek back when you could still do that, broke the man's jaw, and then his teammates called him jawbreaker. Now, it's one thing for you to go (laughs) in there and play the wood. It's another thing for your teammates – to give you that kind of nickname. Nah, you don't want to see Bob in the hole. Boom, boom, man. Mancini said you didn't want to see Bob in the hole. Like, that's all I needed to hear. Yeah. Right. So to, to say that that man is tough is, I think, to put it a different sort of way. But I'm, I'm excited to hear what he has to say. I'm excited to see what he thinks of these leagues that he's going to be covering. Uh, I'm really excited to see what his TV persona looks like because I don't – you mentioned casualness, but I've always thought of Bob as being self-assured. You know, yeah. like he yeah. just – he just understands who he is and what his role is, and lets not, everybody
1: go to work. He's not going to allow himself to look bad on, tel- on national television. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the game, any the game, the player. He's still a player. Mm-hmm. The, these guys that are on that set are players. Not it, it, realistically, they're players because they played the game, and they and Fox has put together a hell of a team.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but Bob's are co- still competing. He's competing with those guys. He's going to be competing with all the, all the other. Uh, ex coaches that are doing television. Now he's going to want to succeed and, and be uh, acknowledged. as one of the better guys in that field. You know, I kid him. I said, well, you gotta, you gotta stock up on your electric blue blazers. because Everybody's got to wear electric blue now on television. Uh, and then you got to make sure you set on the end of your coat so that there's no roll up on your collar. So your, your, your shoulders here don't look like it's all your slept in it. I kidding him, but, uh. I look at him as one of my best friends. You know, as I mentioned earlier in, in March of seventeen, my wife got killed on a driving home from a, the gym on her Vespa, and a kid ran over her because he was he was on his phone. He killed her. Uh, a, a minor. It's terrible. And so that was like on a Thursday, I believe. So Friday, Bob uh, texts me, "Are you going to be home Sunday?" And man, i I'm, I'm just trying to. Put all these pieces together. And I said, Yeah, I'll be home. He said, Well, Carol and I, as his wife, we'd like to come by and see you. So I'm thinking, man, they're gonna bring me a, a casserole. Mm-hmm. That's an old Oklahoma tradition, you know. When somebody passes away and you come by to pay your condolences and your respects, you bring something to eat.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they didn't bring a casserole, they just brought themselves. And the March Madness was on television. So we settled in at my house. Bob, Carol, and myself, and watched basketball all afternoon. And he had a lot better things to do, I'm sure, than babysitting old Jr. But he he loves me, and I love him. He's he's a true friend, and so it was a matter of he felt like that was his obligation to stand by a friend who has just had the worst thing in the world that could happen to him occur. But that's Bob Stoops that I know, mm-hmm. and I know he's competitive. Hey, he's competitive on the damn golf course. You know, he's a killer. He, like, he's a competitor. And I think that, that that's what his teams learned from him was to compete, be prepared to compete, and be prepared to win. And I think Bob would be prepared to win in this new uh, gig for Fox.
0: Yara, you've been very gracious with your time, sir. I sincerely appreciate you stopping by to talk with us a little bit about OU, a little bit about your experience. Last question I have for you before I let you go. Did you have any choice in being an Oklahoma fan? Like, how did you get to be on board with Sooners? Because there's still people that root for that team in Stillwater.
1: Sure. And I don't. Hey, look, uh, I, I'll be perfectly uh, transparent. I root for that team in Stillwater, too, except for one game a year. Mm. I'm an Okie. I'm an Oklahoman. Uh, you know, my family came here in the 1880s. I still own a 160-acre farm in Adair County that was a uh, part of my family's Bureau of Indian Affairs land grant. So I'm, I'm here. I got my roots are here. I'm, you know, even though I got a place here in Jacksonville on the beach, nicer to say, uh, and our headquarters of AEW are here and the Jags are here. Uh, I'll always be at Oklahoma. So I don't cheer. I have too, too many friends that have uh, Oklahoma state ties. Mm-hmm. I don't cheer against them except one game a year. I want, I want my Sooners to beat the Cowboys.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but I, I don't know that I had any choice. I think one of the things that, uh, turned me on to broadcasting in general, uh, was OU football
2: mm.
1: because I became a big fan of sports casting on radio and, you know, at night when I was a kid, I got a little transistor radio with a little earplug, you know, uh, for Christmas or birthday or something. And, uh, I would listen to Harry Carey and Jack Buck on radio station, KMOX out of St. Louis listen to the Cardinals. So I became a fan of the voices. And the radio voices. We didn't have ESPN at that point in time. There was no Fox Sports at that time. So, uh, I'm a I'm a big proponent of the the voices of radio, the voices of football, and uh, so I fall in line. I followed you know one of my favorite broadcasters was Ray Scott, Chris Shankel, and of course the great Keith Jackson. Quick Keith Jackson story. I go to Stillwater to watch Bedlam. Uh, and, uh, he's calling, I think it might've been his last game in the big 12. He might've done a bowl game later on, but one, but this is one of his very, very last, uh, performances and outings. And so one of the cameramen, the, his cameraman in his booth came down to the field where I was hanging and said, Hey, would you mind coming up stairs and meeting Keith Jackson? And I'm saying, are you kidding me? Of course he'd like to meet you. He, he calls you, you're the slobber knocker guy. <laughs> so I, I, we go upstairs to the booth, go through the security issues and all that stuff, pass me right on through. He said, there he is. Uh, I hope you like vodka outside. Of course, i like Barry switch when he's recruiting and he found those, uh, those, uh, what past blue ribbon cans outside a guys house. And he yeah. says, well, the guy goes in the father says, coach, can I, can I give you a beer? Only if it's a past blue ribbon. That's my beer. Whatever the hell the beer was, go. switch or go through the trash. Saw what they drinking. Mm. Uh, that's recruiting, man. That's that's street smart recruiting. So I go up there and we have a little cocktail before the game. And he didn't, of course, miss a beat. He wasn't drunk. He just. I said, these are great, good for medicinal purposes, right, Mister Jackson? I'm Keith. I'm Keith. He said, I enjoy your work and you have passion and it seems like you're having fun at what you do, and I just hope that uh, you always have. Broadcasting, man, you got to have fun broadcasting. You know, nobody wants to hear uh, the version of that. You know that comedian Stephen Wright. hmm He drones on, and uh, you know, I, I can't be Stephen Wright. I got to be Jr. It's like you got to be RJ, but we got to be ourselves, man. That's the secret of being a great broadcaster: is being organic and being real, mm-hmm. because now the people don't think that they're being played. Oh, well, he's just saying that because that's his job. No, I say things because that's how I feel. Mm. And luckily for me, how I felt has, has generally connected well with my audience and they've been hanging around me for multiple generations. Now I've met families where grandpa was a fan of mine and dad, the son and his grand, the grandson, three generations of fans that all griff listening to my work and I, I look at that as a great source of pride. So I, I'm, I'm blessed to be doing what I'm doing and, and uh, I enjoy talking to you. I, I, I did your radio show, didn't I? Yes, sir. Yes, back sir. In, you did. Back in the day?
0: Yes, sir. And it was uh, one of the highlights like this uh, of my career because, as you mentioned, I'd come up listening to you. Like, you're you're part of my childhood. You're part of my adulthood. Good. I love the Grillin' JR podcast. Uh, friends of mine, we all listen, and uh, I love to support you in what you're doing. And it just means the world to me as an, as an Okie and as an <laughs> yeah. Oklahoma fan. I appreciate that, it. You're still doing what you're doing and you care this much about it. And I'd be lying if I didn't say, I learned a lot about how to do this job from you.
1: Well, thank you. Oh, well take the good stuff. If you can find it. <laughs> don't have, don't hammer on the bad, uh, bad English and bad enunciation. Sometimes RJ, I invent words. Cause I don't know what the hell to I'm say. I'm, I'm, I'm so fired up. <laughs> I, 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 I make up words thinking that they're a real word. Then I find out afterwards, you know, JR, that's not really a word. Well, it is now, <laughs>
0: but, but no. Okay. Like to that point though, like when we score a touchdown, we hear your voice, you know, and we, we hear you calling the yeah. play, right. Even if, I mean, even if we're laying over the top and you, I know you've heard all of these things and, and sometimes you probably get inundated with them, but that's how big a deal you are. Not just to the sport of, of wrestling, but to us, to sports just in general. You know, I can't go anywhere without hearing your voice. I wonder if that ever gets to you.
1: Uh, it depends on the time and the place. Mm. You know, I had a guy, uh, I was, I was boarding a flight, uh, before the COVID thing. Mm-hmm. And this guy and his son were standing behind me as we were preparing to board. And, uh, so this guy's really, really close to He and I are together. I mean, he's really little. in my space. Yeah. So what he's, he starts whispering and he's, he's giving me all the dialogue that I said when Mick Foley got thrown off the hell in a cell by the undertaker in 1998, he's reciting this thing, verbatim. (laughs) And so it's, and people are looking around and everything. And so finally I'm thinking, you know, I I know this guy means well, and it's great that he's a fan and he's Mm -hmm. remembered this this dialogue for all these years, for goodness sakes. And I turned around to, I don't want to say confront him, but to address it. Right. And his son was probably 12. He certainly wasn't born when this occurred in 98 kid was a young kid. And he said, Jr. I'm sorry, but he does this all the time at home and my mother hates it. So we were sitting in doubt, DFW getting ready to board, and there's this deal. Or the worst one is there's a whole empty row of, st- of a urinals, and a fan comes in, and he's got to stand right beside me. And that's a little awkward. Mm-hmm. And they start reciting things. Hey, JR, is it going to be a slobber knocker? You know, is he, is he goofier than a pet coon? Or is it whatever, whatever, whatever? And I'm thinking, you know, we could probably have this conversation. i said that. Why don't we have this conversation outside and not, you know, not here at the, at the old urinal? and there's all those journals right down there that are empty. So it, it I don't want to say it gets old. Mm-mm. It gets awkward at times, right. depending on the place and the time. So, uh, but I, 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 and I covet those opportunities. Uh, you know, of course they, they want selfies. Now everybody wants a selfie. And when I first started, there wasn't nobody taking selfies for God's sakes. So now everybody's got a camera and everybody wants a selfie and no matter where you are or how quick you are or close you are missing your flight or whatever it may be, uh they want a picture. And I accommodate 99% of them. Unless they're closing the door and I'm gonna miss my flight, you got your selfie. So and I'll here's how I love it. If you're gonna take a selfie with me, please have your camera ready. Don't have to go on your phone and look up all your stuff and you know everything. Uh much like I try to get on the Zoom call today. Uh, Not too smart, so. But anyway, I said I've had the time of my life, and you know I'm working. We do four shows a month, and I work four days a month. I'm having a blast, man. He said, "Well, who wouldn't have a blast making a good living and working four days a month? Well, you still got to go out there and do it. And there's no net, and there's you know. So I, I'm a I'm blessed, man. I'm probably one of the luckiest Oklahoma guys you know. I've had a, a wonderful career." And I just hope that uh, the good Lord gives me a little bit more time to have some more fun. It's a good life right now. The good Lord's blessed me in many ways.
0: Thank you, junior We'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay, buddy. Anytime.
0: My thanks to Jim Ross, Jr., for taking time to talk with us about his team, my team, the Oklahoma Sooners. And I would be remiss if I did not say that sometimes, yeah, it, it, it can be just a little bit overdone when people come up to other people to talk. Cause I, I gave it the Mike Stoops or Mike Stoops, the Mike Tyson question of if you see Mike Tyson in your favorite restaurant eating soup, are you going to go ask that man for his autograph or a picture? Are you going to let that man eat his soup? I'm probably going to let him eat his soup, right? I don't know that I want to be walking up to Jim Ross as he's in the urinal quoting Jim Ross back to him. That's weird. Stop doing that. But also gives me an opportunity to say how much I love sports entertainment, how much I love the WWE and uh, it's so hard. For me to sit back here in this studio listening to a guy out here hollering my name when last year I spent more money on spilled liquor and barred from one side of this world to the other than you made. You talking to the diamond gauge wearing tiger eye ring wearing. Kiss stealing, woo, wheeling dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down. Woo! I had to. I'm sorry. I I had to. I get so fired up. Like, so, like when somebody says, when he told that story about, look, I have people that are reciting to me what I said about Mick Foley and Helen in Cell 98. I'm laughing because yes. Don't do that. But also, I'm that guy. I'm watching my favorite promos. I know that the cream will rise to the top. Okay, I know about (laughs) the American dream and there being two bad people in this world. One of John Wayne, he's dead, baby. I just, I'm sorry. I love that stuff. Like I would be here cutting promos all day, every day. If that was my job, like I just, it's so much fun to do and then be able to get into the ring and do some of the stuff that is awesome. Putting people in a figure four, putting people in the master lock, you know, coming up here like the legend killer. I mean, Hey, look, I'm, I'm here for it. All right. To that end, if I was going to give you a list of non-conference games in 2021, in which we put the Intercontinental Championship on the line, or we put a bid to wrestle for the WWE Championship on the line. And all you had to do was beat somebody to get to the match you want to get to. These would be those matches, okay? And the first one of those games that can really flip your fortunes into one where you might be playing for national championships come 2021 is Miami versus Alabama. If Miami beats Alabama... In Atlanta, you call a neutral site, but you know Atlanta is SEC country. That is that is their territory. And you do it with D'Eric King, and you do it with Charles Rambo, and you do it with Rhett Lashley. You you might have something over there, Manny Diaz. Like this is the year in which Alabama is not we call it not having a quarterback. Obviously, they have a five star and Bryce Young, but when we say that, we say not a dude that is returning as a starter. You're breaking in a new tailback. You're breaking in a new bevy of wide receivers, right? You're trying to depend a little bit more on your defense, but even Nick Saban says you can't play defense in today's game. If you can have Dear King crossing his arms, looking at Bruce Leroy, talking about playtime is over, boy. You you might be on you might be on your way. Uh, you, you might actually reach that upper level where your mind, body, and soul must be one. That is a game to watch. Miami beats Alabama, yeah. They're going to get a chance to play for titles. Now, Clemson is at the other end of that, but let's start with that. The next team on this list, for me, has to be Nebraska. If Nebraska beats Oklahoma, we're talking about the front runner to win the Big Ten West Championship or division and then play in the Big Ten. Championship game, probably against Ohio State, but Indiana looks good. Penn State might be not terrible. Michigan might not be terrible. Rutgers is on its way up. People are sleeping on Maryland. Like it's Michigan State is got year two of Mel Tucker, in which they might be decent. Like it's a loaded division. We know that. But if Nebraska is able to come down to Owen Field, knowing what Nebraska has been in recent years, we'll talk about Nebraska a little bit later on in some depth. And Scott Frost can get the win that his program has needed since he took over the job in what is a rivalry game of rivalry games. Yeah. Nebraska is going to be playing for championships as well, because that Oklahoma team is built to hunt, baby. Like they out here looking for the whole bear. okay? and they're looking for the whole bear with their bare hands. That's that's how built they are. So if they can come down. I think the narrative ought to be Nebraska's good, not that Oklahoma's bad, because there are too many people, myself included, that think that Oklahoma ought to win that game by three, four touchdowns. Next team on this list got to be Carl Durrell's Colorado. I I watched Alamo Bowl. You watched the Alamo Bowl. We watched Casey Thompson go eight to ten with four touchdowns through the air. That means fifty percent of his passes have been touchdowns according to that one game. Like that's that's stupid. That's ridiculous. And they play Texas A and I mean, here with text saying him hey yeah, they replace a quarterback, but you also got Jimbo Fisher saying we're gonna beat Nick Saban. And then you got Nick Saban looking at him going in what golf? Like it's like that. Because that's how I feel about Ampersand you, a program that has not won a national championship since 1939, but carries itself like it's won the last seven. All right. If y'all get beat by Colorado, the Pac-12 is back, baby. Like that's that's what it is. Like they all the way back because some other stuff is gonna be taking place as well. But I gotta say, Carl Durrell might be up for a raise they go get that win against AM. and And then another way in which Pac-12 might be back is UCLA versus LSU. Now, this might actually end up being a night game, which would be a lot of fun, but Chip Kelly's squad low-key might be actually good. Like, they, they got a couple of dudes out there that I really like, including Dorian Thompson-Robinson. But more than that, LSU might walk in that game expecting a W in the same way that Oklahoma walked in that game a couple years ago and not only expected W ran roughshod over Chip Kelly and UCLA, but you've seen a bunch of the kids that left have left the kids that want to be there are there. I like this game for UCLA, but I also like it for the PAC 12 because they win, PAC 12 is back. Baby. So you got two games on the, on the program right now in which you get a win against these SEC West teams, not the SEC SEC West teams. Yeah, we're going to talk about you a little bit differently, and we're going to be expecting you to compete for the Pac-12 South Division, play for a Pac-12 championship, and that team to play for a college football playoff berth. All right, Florida State, I'm going to get to in a bit because I know somebody's going to bring that up. But Arkansas is number five on this list for me because if Arkansas beats Texas, it will be a fulfillment of the promise that they showed in 2020. I've been bullish on Arkansas and Sam Pittman for a very long time. I, have, I want to see Sam Pittman on the number one ranked show. I think he's one of the more fascinating and fun characters in all of college football. And he's a hell of a football coach. And you look at that staff, the staff is awesome. And you manage to keep Barry Odom as your defense coordinator as Texas was making a run at your mans. So there's some blood there. Also, you can take it back to the 80s. You can take it back to 1969 when it was Arkansas, Texas, going after national championships. And that game is in Fayetteville. You want Steve Sarkeesian in, in year one. You want Casey Thompson as his, in his first chance to be a starting quarterback for Texas. You want the national Gatorade player of the year in 2019 in Jake Smith. You want all the smoke. You want PK, Pete Kwiatkowski coming down from Washington to tell you whether or not it's really good. And then you want to see if KJ Jefferson or Malik Hornsby got it to go. Probably going to be KJ Jefferson in a way that I never thought it was going to be. I thought Malik Hornsby was going to get that job. But it's still up for grabs and we'll see. But we know what they have at wide out. We know what they got at tailback. We know that defense was outstanding. And Arkansas also gives me the opportunity to tell you that you're wrong about your Matt Corral assessments today. Because as bad as y'all want Matt Corral to be good, Matt Corral threw six interceptions in one damn football game against Arkansas. So either you're going to tell me that Arkansas is that much better or Matt Corral is that worse. Because apparently all y'all did was watch Ole Miss Alabama. Y'all decided Ole Miss was good and didn't watch any more Ole Miss football games. Archie, they beat Indiana in the bowl game. They beat who? They did what? Yeah, that's what I thought. But I'm here for Arkansas-Texas because I think the fan bases really want it. Arkansas has got a tremendously loyal and rabid fan base, and Texas people are all over the place. And I can't wait to see what would happen if Texas loses this game to Arkansas, what the meltdown might be. Because they're not supposed to lose this game to Arkansas, even in year one with Steve Sarkeesian. And then the bonus that I mentioned earlier, Florida State versus Notre Dame. Y'all remember Notre Dame versus Texas, like, 2016? It's kind of the same thing. Like, Notre Dame going to be bringing in a brand-new quarterback, bringing in a brand-new defense coordinator. Though I love Marcus Freeman. I think Marcus Freeman's a dude. And Kyle Hamilton is the best safety, like, the real safety in college football. I can make an argument that Malachi Moore and Eli Ricks might be better DBs, but as a dude playing center field for you, you're not going to find anything better this year than Kyle Hamilton. But he don't play quarterback, and he don't score points unless he air Reed returning them, and I don't, I don't know if he got that yet because there's only been one Ed Reed. Meanwhile, Mike Norvell has been recruiting his butt off. Shout out Mike Norvell, who was a GA when I was a cheerleader, tossed the girls in the air, catch them by the feet, and was learning on the on and was learning on the Todd Graham, and cut his teeth at Arizona State as well. And then goes over to Memphis, turns them into a world beater, and now is at Florida State. Managed to stymie the revolution that Marvin Wilson was leading by saying, hey, look, let's sing Kumbaya, let's come together, and let's try to do something. Because if you beat Notre Dame, a team that played in the college football playoff, and then you're able to put together the kind of squad and the kind of season that turns some heads, yeah, we could talk about you in the ACC. But, again, Miami, North Carolina, Florida State, all in that second tier for me. Clemson, we know what Clemson is, and somebody's going to have to beat Clemson for this to be real but it has the potential to be a tone setter for Florida state going forward. And I don't think anybody's really going to get upset among the neutrals if Notre Dame catches an L because as much as people claim to hate Alabama or claim to hate Texas or claim to hate Ohio state or Michigan or whatever, most people can congregate around. We don't like Notre Dame. So I think there's going to be a bunch of people that are rooting for the public school to beat the private school. In a game that is going to matter to the private school quite a bit, but it's going to matter to the public school even more. So watch that game, Florida State beats Notre Dame. So I said five, and we gave you six. All right, now I want to do a segment that we are calling We Out ya, which is you participating in the show. We put out a call on the social medias every week because there's a question that I wanted to ask you and get your thoughts about and see what you want to investigate because I love that aspect of the show. It's how I came up. Many of y'all have been following the YouTube channel for years, quite literally. And you know that I'm in the comments all the time, probably being snarky in my replies. But the question that we put out this week is around the what if. Shout out to social manager JV Duncan, who had this idea a couple of weeks ago. I, was like, I don't know if that's going to work, man. And then we put it out there and it works. You know, the, the social dude understands the socials. Who who would who would have uh, guessed that? Perhaps not me, the dude that is. Hosting the show, I'm a, I'm an idiot. Javion is smart. Now, the what ifs are: what if this thing happened in college football? And I was thinking something more like future casting, as opposed to you know getting into the DeLorean and setting it to I don't know October twentieth, twenty eighteen, for all of you Purdue fans out there. What if Ohio State had won that game? And I'm still also thinking more to the point of you know what if twenty twenty three five star quarterback Arch Manning commits to Jackson State? Okay, that. That is content for me for years. Like I, just, that would have made me happy. But that's not what y'all wanted to talk about. And what y'all did want to talk about, I thought was interesting. And to give, well, those questions, I want to invite on producer Cat,
2: aka Sec Catherine. Producer Cat, uh, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you again for another wonderful introduction. Um, all right, so here's my first one for you. It's from at Profitology. Hmm. And they said, "What if Nick Saban did replace Mac Brown?"
0: I love this question. I love this question. Uh, shout out Prophetology who uh, replied on my Instagram account. And you can find me on the socials. You can find number one show, show on the socials wherever it is that you want to do social. Where that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But I love this because it really does change college football because Nick Saban is that much of force in college football. But this was also a thing that was really on the table for those of y'all that don't know. All right. So coming off the 2012 national championship at Alabama, this is according to a Texas billionaire and former UT regent named Tom Hicks, who went on Corby Davidson's podcast, your turn personality, the Cobra on the ticket, shout out the ticket. I love the radio show. Uh, I used to listen to it all the time. I still do on the podcast. Now, The quote that he gave Davidson is another region. And I had the conversation with Saban and his agent. And he said, if Saban was a business guy, he'd be what you call a turnaround artist. He's not a long-term CEO. Fix it, win, and go on. He knows he will never catch Bear Bryant's legacy in Alabama. But he'd like to create his legacy and that he's won national championships at more schools than anybody else. He's done it at LSU and Alabama, and he knows he can win a national championship at Alabama. This, again, according to a former UT regent in Tom Hicks. And I can't say that a lot of that is wrong because up until LSU, Nick Saban is a nomad. Among nomads, I might add, like coaching by its very nature has dudes moving around taking jobs where they can get jobs. It's not uncommon for... A career college football coach to have more than a dozen gigs. Saban had like ten and eighteen years or something up until LSU. Right, had a decent run in Michigan State, but got railroaded by Nebraska, who we'll talk about in a little bit. And was like, "Man, I want to do that to other people." And then leading up story here, but basically, Miss Terry got involved and said, "We're coming to LSU." And they end up at LSU. They win a two thousand three national championship, and he gets lured to Miami. Doesn't like coaching in the NFL. Sees the open spot at Alabama, ends up at Alabama because Mal Moore is a smart man getting him back to Tuscaloosa. Turns that ship around in short earner, gets hired 2007, wins a national championship in 2009. Again, that is where Texas enters the picture. Because what had happened was Marcel Darius took out Colt McCoy's ribs, you know, like he was making Eve uh, out of Adam. Like it was like that, man, just went straight at him. And that loss for Mac Brown in Texas is also a demarcation line. It is halfway through his 16-year stint. And at a time when people are looking at Texas going, I don't know how this is going to be. So remember going into 2010 when this is first like actually thought about, Texas going five and seven under Mac Brown, right? And then in his subsequent years, went eight and five in 2011, nine and four in 2012, and of course got beat down by Oklahoma, 63 to 21 in 2012. And that was when the regions were like, enough, especially as they see Bob Stoops in Oklahoma finish number four in the country in 2012, while Nick Saban Alabama the national championship. So the feelers were out there as Jimmy Sexton called up one of these regents, that is the agent for Nick Saban and many other college football coaches and said, Hey, what do you think about Saban coming through? Now think about that. Think if Nick Saban becomes the head coach at Texas, we'll, we'll get to Mac Brown here in a second. We know that Texas produces the second or third most number of blue chip recruits in the country year in and year out. We know that Texas gets more than its fair share of blue chip recruits from the state because kids grow up wanting to go and play for the flagship university, even though most of the kids that play there now are black in the history of the University of Texas is not so, shall we say, white. Now, getting into that, where does Nick Saban actually make a mark? LSU. Why does he make a mark at LSU? Because he's able to convince kids that are from Louisiana to stay there and that they can win there. And he's going to get the kind of staff in place that allows for winning national championships, even if it means rotating cast every other year. You bring him Texas. You turn Texas into power. Let's assume that he wins a, I don't know, 2016 national championship at in Texas instead of say, I don't know, Alabama doing in 2017. Okay. That means that the Big 12 fortunes have also changed because now we're talking about the Big 12 as one in which you can win national championships and probably going to raise the rate of pay for coaching salaries. And you're going to make the Big 12 a much more marketable product to networks, which means that your buyout is going to be more or buyout, which means that your TV revenue share is going to be more. For instance, Big 10 pulls in about $50 million a year per school. What if that was, you know, the Big 12 between pulls in about 36 million? All these things matter when you talk about going to get Nick Saban to coach a team. But Mac Brown wasn't having it, and Mac Brown squashed it until about 2013 when news came down the pike from Bill Battle, AD, at Alabama at the time that we're going to extend Nick Saban by four years because we're, we're tired of this. We don't, we don't like any of this. We don't like any of this conversation with Texas because we know the only place that's got deeper pockets than us right now is the University of Texas. Now. The other part about that that I find really interesting is Mac Brown probably is still the head coach of Texas if Taysom Hill and the BYU Cougars did not take a blowtorch to Manny Diaz's defense in 2011. I mean melted it like a slab of butter, put in an oven, set it broil. So much so bad that the first thing Mac Brown did after that game was fire Manny Diaz. Okay, the same Manny Diaz who I am talking about. I I hope beats Alabama in the Miami versus Alabama game so what would have happened everything would have changed like that's what would have happened if Nick Saban had taken the job at Texas uh producer cat what do you think would happen if Nick Saban had taken the job at Texas
2: I still think Nick Saban would be the best college football coach to ever coach I don't think it matters where he goes or where he's coaching he's gonna make the team that he's at the best team in the country and win several national championships.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm with that. It's just about where and when, but I guess the other argument is the only places that he have won, he, that he has won sec championships or, or sec champion. Well, I took the words out of my mouth. The only places he's won national championships are at sec schools, particularly in the sec West. Like is Nick Saban, Nick Saban at Vanderbilt. Maybe probably not. Would he be the best college football coach of all time? I don't know is the answer to that because the championships we think of him having all come at Alabama. Interesting note. All right. So we got two more questions. What's the next one?
2: All right. So this one is from Jesse, the Buckeye. Okay. And she asked, what if tattoo gate never happened for Ohio state?
0: Uh, shout out. Jesse the Buckeye, who also does tremendous pro wrestling commentary on the Twitters, uh, and I enjoy it. But to the question that she asked, what if Tattoo Kate had never happened, I think we need, to, uh, we need to fill you in if you don't know. In 2011, five Ohio State players, including the star quarterback and a former number one overall recruit in the country, Terrell Pryor, were suspended for the first five games of the 2011 season for selling merchandise, receiving improper benefits, in quotes, From a tattoo parlor. They sold their Big Ten championships rings from the teams that they played on and their own jerseys, pants, shoes, and prior sold a sportsmanship award he received from the 2008 Fiesta Bowl. The irony of selling your sportsmanship award and being slapped with improper benefits, I'm here for it, right? In addition to the five game suspension, the players had to repay various amounts based on what they sold. The scandal ultimately. Resulted in the resignation of Jim Trussell, okay, who was doing a job there. And I need to outline this like, those 2000 teams for Ohio State that Jim Trussell coached are good. And by comparison, check this out 2005, that's my junior year of high school. Ohio State goes 10 and 2, finished number four in the AP poll, and had the 74th best recruiting class in the country. 2006, 12 and 1. Number two ranking, the 25th best class in the country. 2007, 11 and 2, number five ranking, the 72nd best recruiting class in the country. So he is taking these classes and turning out jumps, right? 2008, 10 and 3, number nine ranking, 10th class in the country. 2009, 11 and 2, number five, fifth best class in the country. 2010, 12 and 1, sixth in the country. Or fifth in the country, excuse me. And then the number 18 class in the 2020, 2010 cycle. And then 2011 comes along, Luke Fickle's head coach. They go six and seven. They're not ranked. And they have the number six class in the country. And that last number, number six, is the one you need to harp on. Because who comes in after Luke Fickle but one Urban Meyer? And nobody expected, even Ohio State fans that claim that they did, they're lying to you. For Ohio State, To go 12-0, and finish number three in the country, and have the fifth best class in the 2012 cycle with Urban Meyer in his first year. It was not expected. It was so unexpected that Gene Smith, AD at Ohio State then, AD at Ohio State now, was asked, yo, man, did you expect a bowl ban? Because he didn't institute a self-proposed bowl ban for 2011, right, after all of this. No is his answer, right? The man really did not believe that they would have to sit out a bowl game. Matter of fact, the quote that he gives to Cleveland.com is, I never thought about it this year. That is 2011. I was pretty confident, frankly, when you look at the way we looked at the facts and considered things. That's why I'm surprised and disappointed. But when you looked at it the way we did, we didn't think it was possible. I don't think he thought it was possible that the NCAA was going to give them a bowl ban. And I don't think he thought it was possible that they were going to go 12 and 0 in 2012. Okay. Also in there, the NCAA hit them for violations that occurred in like 2002, 2003, that had nothing at all to do. So they claim with tattoo gate, but we're people, they're people and people have things in the back of their heads that they don't put down on paper. We all believe the perception is you're taking it out on them for tattoo gate. All to say You would have had to train continuing to roll, but you also would have still had Jim Trestle as your head coach, perhaps. No, you would have been fired or resigned as president of Youngtown State now. But you would have won a national championship because that bull band would have been served in the 2011 year when it don't really matter. And then you could go and actually play for a national championship in 2012. And who would not have wanted to see Ohio State versus Alabama instead of Notre Dame versus Alabama? Because we all knew that game was going to end the way it did. And most of us checked out out of the first two series. So that one, I think, is really interesting because it's also, I think, what Ohio State stands for and how important it was to Ohio State to win, knowing that they weren't going to even play in the game, that, hey, look, uh, we're going to play, and we're going to win. And Urban Meyer didn't come here to do anything but that. Uh, Producer Cat, what do you think? You think, uh, you think it changes things, like, drastically?
2: I really don't. I agree with you. Um, I think the point that you made about 2012 2012- – Stuck out to me, and I didn't really have an opinion on this one. But as I was listening to you, I was like, "Oh, I agree. I agree." Urban Meyer getting in there and doing what he was able to do in 2012 makes a lot of sense.
0: Well, and thing I would add to that is Urban Meyer ushered in this this real change in recruiting tactics mm-hmm. because up until he started doing it regularly, like routinely, coaches respected that a kid was committed to a program. He didn't try to go in there and poach the kid. Urban said, nah, they're not committed to you until they sign a national letter of intent. So he would go into Penn State coffers, into Wisconsin coffers, and he would pull out their gems. right? And that was the way in which the game absolutely changed up. Like, Oklahoma fans be the first to tell you, they believe that Nick Saban is the reason they don't have Jace McClellan playing tailback at Oklahoma or Kamar Wheaton playing tailback at Oklahoma who are both tailbacks at Alabama in a year in which Oklahoma could use not one, but two tailbacks at Oklahoma. Kamar Wheaton was a five-star recruit. Jace McClellan was a high four-star recruit. And Nick Saban showed up on, at witching hour at the early signing period and said, hey, your toys are my toys. I am anti-Santa. Showing up to your house at Christmas, take your stuff off the fireplace, off the hearth, and go play with it in front of you. In front of you. I love that Urban Meyer brought that to college football because – That is peak capitalism. I I enjoy that we are being transparent about that in this age. All right. What is our last question, Kat?
2: Okay. Our last one is from at CFB nerds. Mm. What if Nebraska wasn't forced to stop taking partial qualifiers in the nineties? Ooh. All
0: right. Shout out CFB nerds. uh, Also on the YouTube, my friends, Daniel and Josh, they do an outstanding job. They got, for real day jobs. And this is what they do for fun. And I can't even fathom just that. But I think this one comes from uh, Daniel in that, cause he's been fascinated with Nebraska and what has happened to it since. Remember when I said I was going to talk about Nebraska, this is that time. So I think we need to start with what was Nebraska in the nineties. A juggernaut. The way you think about Alabama today was nebraska in the 90s okay like let me walk this out for you so that you understand what it exactly is that tom osborne and nebraska were doing at the time because i don't think we're i I used to say i don't think we're gonna see anything like it ever again and then alabama popped up but in 1996 they won where 95 going into 96 they won a national championship over Florida and Steve Spurrier who at the time was a really good football team claim they're basically Clemson right in in the mid 90s Nebraska had become the first team to win back-to-back national championships consensus national championships I should say in 39 years in 1995 okay and they did it with running a triple option Tommy Frazier was half the offense by himself okay they had fallen just 3 points short of being the first team to finish with three consecutive national titles um, consensus, right? And that was in a loss to Florida State that was 18-16 to in the 1994 Orange Bowl, okay? The Cornhuskers were so dominant that they sort of kind of created a problem within the NCAA. And I'm going to tell you, 1996, what a time to be alive, because Tim Layden wrote a really great piece about Nebraska and how Prop 48 is going to be its downfall, which is the forcing them not to take partial scholarships. And I'm going to explain that right now. So you need to know what a partial scholarship and what Prop 48 was designed to do. Okay. This is also the thing that threatened Nebraska supremacy once they got into the Big 12, because the Big 12 members said out loud, hey, we don't think nebraska should be allowed to do what they're doing all right what were they doing they were using the prop 48 or partial qualifier rule to their benefit and the partial qualifier is a prospective athlete who meets only two of the minimum academic requirements this is an, again in 1995 96 it's since changed grade point average or standardized test score right that, that's one of them you got to meet. The minimums are a 2.0 GPA with a 900 SAT score before they change the stats and the numbers, or 21 on the SE, uh, ACT, excuse me, or a 2.5 GPA and a 700 SAT and a 17 ACT. So basically, if you had those two things, you could qualify. A non-qualifier meets neither standard. So if you partially qualified, Nebraska was willing to take a risk on you and put you on scholarship. Okay, then... Going into the inaugural season of the Big 12, the Big Ten, uh, Big 12 presidents, not Big 10, voted unanimously to limit each school to four partial qualifiers <laughs> per year. That's two for the men's, two for the women, and no more than one in a single sport. Now, what does that mean for Nebraska? In the Fiesta Bowl, again, Tim Layden in Sports Illustrated, Nebraska started four partial non-qualifiers. They started four. They started four when the Big 12 has just said, no, we're limiting you to four total across both male and female sports and only one per team. And those partial qualifiers, Michael Booker, Christian Peter, Tyrone Williams, and Jared Tomich. Y'all have to just know that and take my word for it and Nebraska's past rushing defense was elite, as elite as its offense was then. Okay. The thing that I thought put this over the top for me was finding out just how many of their players were not just partial of qualifiers, but how many of them were on the team. So Nebraska basically had like open enrollment and was the only major university in Nebraska. And at the time, they had 141 players on their Fiesta Bowl roster. 141. This is at a time again when you got 85 scholarship players. They had that many dudes wanting to walk on at Nebraska. How many did Florida have in that national title game? 94 total. So they had damn near 50 more players than Florida did because of open enrollment, which LSU had for a very long time. And they were taking partial qualifiers and it cost less than three grand for in-state students to go to Nebraska, right? It was affordable. But the thing that I wanted to stress here is that Prop 48 also made it wildly difficult for black folks to go to school. Okay. This is from 1988, um, woefully titled or headline New York Times piece that, that I kid you not starts with the blacks. Don't don't say the, the, black folks, black people, the, the blacks. I don't, I don't we're not the New Zealand rugby team. OK, but this is a quote from that article. The survey that they conducted among the NCAA identified the race of 213 of 274 recruits were disqualified in 1988 due to Prop 48. That's just two years after they put it in or 77.7 percent. A total of 185 of those recruits were black, 86.8%. Okay. It gets deeper. The National Collegiate Athletic Association's director for research, Ursula Walsh, hence my pause. I need to take a breath, said that black recruits accounted for 81% of football ineligibles in 1986 and 90% in 1987, according to an NCAA survey, and yet Tom Osborne and Nebraska were finding ways to get those kids in school. So, all of y'all that want to tell me that an education is priceless and that an education trumps all, we had a rule in place that limited a minority in trying to get an education because we can get into the cultural concepts and whatnot of this. But for the most part, the the, the math's the same. Less black folks going to school means less black folks going to school. And yet Nebraska would get those dudes coming from almost everywhere, including the state of Texas, Florida, wherever, and say, come play here. We will find a spot. That's what you do when you have 141 kids on your team. This is also 1996 is wild at a time when people thought that the 85 scholarships was going to make other schools more competitive. I don't I don't I can't stress that part enough because. The idea that you would limit scholarships and that would make this thing, you know, a little bit more like parody is wild to me. Like, not just wild to me, but a little bit stupid to think about because money doesn't matter and television revenue doesn't matter. But apparently they weren't thinking that way because this is from the Tim Layton article in SI. And I'm going to ask that this article get linked in the show notes and you can read it there because it's a really great read. and It's also good for nostalgia this sure Nebraska will always be one of the most powerful programs in college football along with teams like and I quote Florida State, Michigan, Notre Dame but beginning the next fall the huskers will be part of the pack fighting with and I quote Florida again as if 2006 2008 didn't happen Tennessee yo <laughs> Michigan Syracuse, Miami, Kansas State, and no smoke, Northwestern. Okay, I know Northwestern just played the Big Ten Championship, and I know they played in the Big Ten Championship a couple years before, but you ain't going to Northwestern because you think you're going to play in the NFL. You're going to Northwestern because this is your best power five offer, okay? Like, it's like, why'd you go to Kansas? Same reason. The idea that 85 scholarships just going to make this thing just that much more equal, <laughs> Okay, again, 95. And the thing I say about journalism all the time, we're so wrong in the moment because nobody, no, we don't have the benefit of, of looking forward in time, right? But I, I thought that was a lot of fun. All to say, Prop 48 changed once again in 2016. But I applauded Nebraska for being a place where you could actually go play ball and somebody wanted to help you. Now, rather than just get into the logistics and science behind what is a failed way of testing people, particularly people that come don't come from a privileged, socioeconomic background like a lot of black folks. I was rooting for Nebraska. I was rooting for Nebraska when they had Lawrence Phillips. I was rooting for him when they had Ahmad Green. I was rooting for him when Scott Frost was out there transferring in from Stanford. Not exactly the kind of dude that I'm talking about, but you get it. Even while Oklahoma was Oklahoma for many of the same reasons. I'm about you. I'm about us. And it seemed like Nebraska was about winning and about us. Okay. That, that I think is what would have happened. So to answer the question, what would have happened? Nebraska would have kept on keeping on. Tom Osborne would probably be still coaching into the mid two thousands, right? They would have found an heir apparent. They probably would have still been running some variation of that option. Maybe, maybe it's basketball on grass, like where Urban Meyer ushered in at Bowling Green in Utah, but that's what they would have been doing, and they would have continued to recruit those players. They would have continued to go into Florida, Texas, Georgia, and California to get dudes because Nebraska cares that much about football, and they want to win that badly. Uh, Producer Cat, what do you
2: think? I agree with you. I think okay. they would be as dominant as like a Alabama or, I guess, a Clemson or some program like that is now. Um, and I really liked your context because I didn't know a lot of that. And I think it's important for us to know, um, why certain people are at a disadvantage and why you think it was, um, cool, essentially that Nebraska was making it easier for people to play and for people to go to school. So I appreciated that context.
0: Yeah. Like sometimes I do have to remind folks that before all of this, I was getting a PhD in English. And this stuff absolutely matters to me, Uh, just as this time matters to me today. Many of you are hearing about the Tulsa Race Massacre, 1921 for the first time. I encourage you to continue to read about it and to go look into what is going on. Lots of events going on in my hometown where I live, which is Tulsa. So I'm always going to try to add this context to the sport that we love because it matters. And it matters so much in not just how we consume it, how we feel about it. Think about how JR and I were talking about it, but also... It affects people's lives in ways that we never thought about and don't really think about because we still think of it as a game and it's so much bigger than that sometimes. Uh, This, I think, is the best We Out Here segment that we have done so far, and that doesn't happen without y'all submitting these really interesting questions that lead me down rabbit holes in which I'm like, oh, I have a take." So much so that I'm like, "Producer Cat, I need more time today. She's like, bet, let's go. If you like this show, please subscribe to it on YouTube. Please follow it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. If you're over there, leave a five-star review. It helps people find the show. Shout out to Director Chris, Social Maven, JV on Duncan, and Producer Cat because they handle all this other stuff. I just get to show up here and talk, which is a blessing in and of itself. And we will see y'all next week. That's it for me. That it.